0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back on the Macro Compass. As a reminder, before we start, from January 1st, getting access to this content and much more will require a paid subscription. The offer to sign up, paying only eight months instead of 12, is still valid until November 30th, there are 10 days to go, and there are roughly 750 spots left to be eligible for this discount. We created a landing page to make sure that you can check out which subscription tier suits you the most and take advantage of the offer. If you want, you can check it out at the top of the article. Now, back to the article itself. Uh, This piece is actually dedicated to the 30,000 foot view that sometimes macro investors need to have to make sure they don't miss the macro forest for the trees. Because in this business, we are often inundated by countless news headlines telling us what's happening now. It's kind of a never-ending process. It forces us to spend time and energy dissecting how new information affects the investment landscape. But for a macro investor, actually, every now and then, taking a step back is crucial. Because with a 30,000-foot view, the macro big picture becomes increasingly clear amongst the chaos of countless news headlines we are inundated with each day. Now, in this article, what we will do indeed is to assess the structural trends underpinning our economy and monetary system and how the 2020-2021 tectonic shifts due to the pandemic and the policymaker reactions to it interplayed with the structural trends and also present our conclusions and discuss how the upcoming macro cycle is likely to play out. Now, from a macro big picture perspective, guys, please remember that long-term economic growth is a function of the growth in labor supply and the growth in productivity. In other words, it's highly influenced by how many people actively contribute to generate economic output and how productive the labor force and the use of capital are. Until the mid eighties, the ability to generate strong organic growth in Western economies was very solid combination of strong working age population growth and good productivity trends led to high levels of potential GDP growth. The demographics boom of the um, post-Second World War actually had a very positive effect on labor supply growth and productivity trends were good. So until the 80s, things were actually pretty solid in Western economies. But things rapidly took a turn for the worse in the late 80s, because by the early 90s, the demographics boom that we discussed had exhausted its positive effect. Fertility rates started to decrease, longevity increased, and the combination of all of this led to pretty strong headwinds from a demographics perspective because the share of working age population dropped by several percentage points in a few decades, which basically means that the number of people actively contributing to GDP growth in an economy wasn't growing very fast anymore. Perhaps one could think that an upward trend in productivity growth could offset this. Remember, if long-term economic growth is a function of labor supply growth and total factor productivity, if labor supply growth isn't strong anymore, maybe productivity is picking up the, the slack. Actually, it wasn't the case, especially in the 2010s, as you can see from a couple of charts in the article, productivity growth was pretty stagnant. We made some progress year after year. We became marginally more productive, but those productivity gains were rather small and definitely not enough to push structural GDP higher given the demographics headwinds we just discussed. Why was that the case? Because the great financial crisis left some permanent scars on the economy. There was a lot of capital misallocations. Think of zombie companies, for instance, that were partially generated from monetary policy decisions zero interest rates, QE, and so on and so forth, which actually acted as a drug on productivity growth. And if long-term economic growth, structural, potential GDP growth, is a function of the growth in labor supply, which was pretty poor, and productivity, which was also stagnant, it meant that after the 90s, actually many advanced economies had a bit of a problem to generate strong structural economic growth. And this trend continued up until today if today you look at advanced economies from a potential real gdp perspective you're looking maybe at 1 1.25% area and the equilibrium real interest rates required to sustain this economic growth are roughly 0% and if you think of the demographics um, headwinds ahead these numbers i just mentioned might even look lower in the next one to two decades now we reach Um, The real question here, these low levels of potential real GDP growth are socially unacceptable in capitalistic societies. So what's the fix? How did we manage um, to carry on so far? The answer is debt and leverage. Between 1990 and 2020, all major economies went ahead and used massively credit and debt in an attempt to cyclically boost economic growth way above what was the very poor and declining structural trend. Wherever you look, Europe, Japan, US, the UK, even China saw their total economic debt as a percentage of GDP rise from 100 150% to 300 or 400% in a few decades. Now, the story is, though, that if the underlying economic activity and wages are not rapidly rising, how can these economies sustain such a massive buildup in leverage, especially the private sector, which cannot print money to refinance or service its debt? If those wages aren't going up, how is that possible? Well, the answer there is easy as well. Real yields and yields in general were pushed lower and lower every time. If you think about it, if you make 100K a year, you can probably afford a mortgage at 4% for a house that costs 400K. If with the same 100K a year, interest rates, borrowing rates go down from 4% to 2%, you can now take on 600,000 in debt. So the fix was straightforward, more and more debt at lower and lower interest rates. Now, this system seemed to be able to go on forever. And there are three main elements, if you ask me, that could disrupt this fragile and leveraged system. If the levels, especially of private debt, become excessive, if real rates for some reason went to go up, and if a recession or a deleveraging episode would happen. Now, think about what happened in 2020, 2021. The policymakers' reaction to the pandemic led to a sharp increase in debt levels, Uh, unfunded fiscal deficits in certain uh, jurisdictions, government-sponsored bank lending to corporates and households, which meant that levels of private and public debt in most jurisdictions actually uh, skyrocketed up. So the first potential disruption element actually is here with us already. Second, um, this gigantic injection of real economy money in the private sector, think of the deficits in the US, things of the bank lending to the private sector, coupled with the reopenings led to a very rapid surge in demand. So people had literally more real economy money to spend. There were also bottlenecks in the global supply chain, which compounded the problem and inflation skyrocketed and became more broad and persistent over time, which forced central banks to tighten policy as we are seeing and rapidly raise real interest rates, which was again, rising real interest rates was second potential disruptor factor in this fragile system. And here we are again, what about the third, which are the leveraging episodes and recessions? Well, this tighter monetary and fiscal policies and higher real rates took quite a big toll on both markets and the economy. Uh, The private sector in some cases is slowly freezing basically, and many leading indicators are clearly pointing to a recession in 2023, which is also a check mark on the third potential disruptor of this system. So it's a trifecta of disruptive forces all at once, which made many people ask the question whether we're looking at a regime change. And here comes the answer. Let's not confuse cycles with trends. This is one of the biggest mistakes I see amongst macro practitioners the whole time. Over the last 30 years, Yes, we have made extensive use of debt and lower rates to overlay cyclical growth boosts on the poor growth trends that were due to worsening demographics and stagnant productivity. Recently, the pandemic and the subsequent fiscal and monetary policy reactions have shaken the foundations of this very fragile system. My assessment here is that from a cycle perspective, we're looking at a very, very rapid turn from a strong nominal growth environment in 2021 to a disinflationary recession in 2023. But those are cycles. When it comes to long-term macro trends, the story is different. I put up a chart in the article that shows the the visual difference between macro trends and cycles around these trends. Those are two different things. Have a look at it um, if you're listening to the podcast. When it comes to Long term macro trends. Uh, let's focus on growth and on inflation. And let's start from inflation. The secular disinflationary trend might actually take a marginal pause in the coming decade. On the margin, think about these factors that might contribute to a higher trend equilibrium level in inflation around the world. A, deglobalization and onshoring of labor and supply chains. Those will make basically everything more expensive. from a a labor perspective, from a product perspective. The second is that the labor supply growth that we saw over the last 20, 30 years and the globalization of this labor supply uh, growth, especially think of the cheap one from China, from Vietnam and all the offshoring we did there, this process is likely to come to a halt, mostly because there is no new uh, strong, big amount of labor supply growth coming online from um, China or Asia in general in the next decade or so. And third, the concerted efforts and investments that are needed to transition to net zero emissions. These three factors and many more actually contribute to the secular disinflationary trend taking a pause in the next decade. When it comes to growth though, I think the secular trend down in growth has instead further accelerated Amongst the many reasons, think of the fact that now we have higher levels of unproductive public and private debt than prior to the pandemic, and that acts as a drag on long-term growth. We have a lower labor supply growth, both both in um, developed markets, but also in China. We have an aging population, and that means that there will be less people contributing actively to economic growth in the future. And also, if we polarize the world, if we proceed with deglobalization, with onshoring of supply chains, there will also be... Less global trades and a weaker global trade growth actually is not a positive for uh, for global growth. So this leaves us with a slightly different long term macro backdrop ahead, which is lower trend growth and higher trends, uh, trend levels of inflation. But this duality, actually, this this nuances in in the change of long term macro drivers are not the most notable change I think that the pandemic brought and the the policymakers reaction to the pandemic brought, but it's in how more powerful the cycles ahead will be. Think of those cycles as a pendulum. And I think the swings around the resting position of this pendulum will become bigger over the next decade. Let me try to explain myself. As we keep testing the fragilities of our leverage-based economic model, as I described until now, Policymakers, I think, are likely to react more aggressively at each iteration. When there is a crisis, a cyclical slowdown, there will be an even bigger QE, an even bigger fiscal stimulus. When we go towards a peak positive macro cycles, there will be an even faster QT an even more acute fiscal drag. Think of what's happening today. The fiscal stimulus we had and the QE we had after the pandemic were the biggest we've ever seen. Now we're looking at the super fast pace of quantitative tightening and a very acute fiscal drag around the world. I think these big pendulum swings are only likely to accelerate further. This is likely to cause more boom and bust macro cycles like the one I expect for 2023. To bring down inflation quick as policymakers want, history teaches us that we need a severe recession. And I put up a table over the last 100 years uh, of recessionary episodes in the US that proves that to bring down inflation from where we are today, as fast as the Federal Reserve wants, we will need a recession, which is one of these very aggressive pendulum swings I was talking about. And in the 2020s, if you're an investor, if you're looking for wealth preservation or wealth creation out, out of your portfolio, I think it will be a five to 10 years period, which is much less about buy and hold and much more about macro risk management. And this was it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, Again, quick reminder that uh, from Gen 1st, getting access to the content will require a paid subscription. So feel free to check out in the article itself which subscription tier might suit you the most and take advantage of the exclusive offer, which will last until November 30th. Talk to you guys next week. Mm -hmm.